ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. And today we are talking about occupational violence and aggression. More specifically, we are talking to Joe Saunders from the Australian Security Research Centre about a recent report that has come out titled Occupational Violence and Aggression, Duty of Care in Australia. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So Joe, tell us a little bit about your background. So my background was uh, I started out as a psychology student uh, who started bouncing at nightclubs or doing a little bit of crowd control work uh, as a way of not being broke. <laughs> That's early field research? Yeah, well, you know, the, the five years I spent working in clubs and large events taught me a lot more about behavioural science than I learned in the lecture theatre. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of a, an interesting um, melting pot of, of experiences that I picked up was, uh, was uh, going, going to lectures and learning about why human beings do things and then, uh, and then going to work straight afterwards and seeing how they do things. Yep. So uh, that that was my introduction to the security industry, uh, and uh, while it was always intended to be just a, a part-time gig to get me through uni, I ended up spending 15 years in the industry uh, in a variety of sectors, pretty much everything there is to do in the private security industry, I've done it. So that was... Uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was my background from that side, but along the way as well, I ended up working for Queensland Health quite early on uh, as an aggressive behaviour management instructor, and that, uh, that got me into the whole field of occupational violence prevention, and from there, that became a bit of a passion for me. Um, so uh, I'd always taught martial arts and self-defence, um, basically since I was yeah, around 20 years old, and, uh, and, and then broadening that scope of, uh, of knowledge beyond just the physical response to aggression to what do we do on an organisational level, what do we do to prevent it, what can we do to manage aggression in a, initially in a healthcare environment uh, where we have to be very mindful uh, not only of our safety but also the patient's safety, public perception of what's happening uh, and, and also keeping in mind our ethical and tactical responsibilities as well. So uh, that became a big passion for mine uh, and, uh, and I've basically stayed in that area uh, consulting on occupational violence and, and larger violence management um, yeah, realms ever since. Okay. And the Australian Security Research Centre, what is the Australian Security Research Centre? So the Australian Security Research Centre uh, is basically, well, it, it is what it is. Yep. <laughs> Name it, says it all. It's, it's a research centre um, initially founded uh, to look into uh, various aspects of security and to solve problems. Yep. Uh, and what do we need to know about? What do we need to learn more about? What, where is there a research gap uh, that needs to be filled, and uh, that's really where this study came from. Uh, I I was attending a uh, a breakfast put on by Centre Group last year, and uh, there was a segment on occupational violence, and uh, the presenters basically said that uh, yeah, we've uh, we've looked and and no one's really offering a product on this, and there's no best practice guidelines, and everyone's kind of doing their own thing, uh, yeah, and. To me, that's alarm bells because I look at occupational violence the same way I look at fire prevention or fire safety. If everyone was allowed to, to determine their own level of controls for fire safety, it would be bedlam, right? Yep. <laughs> Imagine if every, every business could decide whether they're going to have an extinguisher or whether they're going to have a fire blanket or whether they're going to bother doing evacuation drills. It's mandated for a reason. Sure. Uh, so that kind of got the gears turning a little bit. I thought, you know, we, there, there is a gap here. We need, we need to do some research. And... Uh, we, st- we got talking about it and that's how the project came about. There's an express need and we thought, you know what, there's people out there that want to do better, but they don't know what good looks like or yep. there's no standard. 
So let's do some research and find out what good looks like. And I believe this was funded in conjunction with ASIL? Yes, absolutely. So we need to give uh, full credit to ASIL. Uh, they, were, they were our first sponsor that came on board to, to support the research, uh, along with the ISRM and Risk2 Solution. Right. Now... Obviously, this, tell us a little bit about the study itself. Uh, why, we've covered why it was important to do the study, but what does the study look at? So we basically set out to be uh, cross-sector. So we didn't want to just focus on one particular area. Uh, as we started doing a literature review, uh, what was very apparent was that there was a lot of research that had been conducted on healthcare and healthcare-related disciplines regarding occupational violence. So there was a lot of research on nursing, aged care, mental health, emergency departments, um, and uh, paramedicine. But there wasn't a lot else other than that. Uh, there were some studies that weren't published uh, for public viewing and, say, corrections and law enforcement and so on. But in terms of uh, what was academically verifiable, there wasn't a lot out there. Uh, so we wanted to look at some of the other sectors that we felt were neglected. So the ones we chose were security, uh, private security industry, because, you know, personal experience. Uh, yep. And, uh, and also uh, liquor and hospitality generally, retail and customer service, uh, and, uh, and a couple of others that we didn't get a lot of return from in terms of, uh, in terms of participation, but we still looked at other sectors as well that were, um, that were a little bit more broader ranging. Sure. And in having said that you looked at those other sectors, I'm now going to proceed to ignore all of them <laughs> and, and focus primarily all of my questions on the private security industry because to me, and I mean... This might be a bit of a duh kind of question. You know, people have accused me of being a bit dense and I'm not going to say they're wrong. Uh, but it seems to me that occupational violence and aggression, surely it's just par for the course mm. in the private security industry. Yeah, and that was probably one of our most troubling findings, even though, as you said, it's a little bit of a, little bit of a duh question uh, that people kind of accept that it's par for the course. What we need to look at is there's still a duty of care. Yep. It, it's like saying, well... Firefighters have to accept the fact that smoke and fire is going to be part of their job. Well, yes, but it doesn't mean that we don't put precautions in place and we don't give them all the training or the equipment they need to be safe from that particular hazard. And I, and I think that's what we need to look at with the security industry and, and other organisations, other industries as well. But but if we're going to focus on the security industry, it, it is one we need to look at: is how are we equipping our people to deal with this risk that we know is there? We yeah. know this is a problem. We can't plead ignorance to it. How do we fix it? Or if we can't fix it, how do we at least keep them safe? Well, that's a really good question. So please do tell. <laughs> well, the, the, one of the big things that came out from the study is that single line solutions are not the answer. Mm. You can't just put in personal duress alarms and say, now we've solved occupational violence. Yep. Because it's not the case. Yep. They are one solution. They're one piece of the puzzle. And what we need is a multi-lined um, integrated solution with a whole bunch of different things. So f from a from a security perspective, we'd look at things right from the beginning, like HR. Who are we hiring? Yep. What are their skills like? What's their temperament like? Are we background checking our personnel? And I'm not saying that these incidents are you know, the, the, the cause or the uh, they're instigated by the personnel, but certainly if you have a combustible personality type, there's going to end up with more aggression than what there otherwise would be. Yep. Um, so that, that might be things like, sure, everyone's got a license, everyone's been through a uh, yeah, police check, but what feel do you get from, them, from the interview? Are you yep. testing how well they deal with being annoyed or being frustrated or having to wait? Or there, there are things we can do at a HR level to, just to see how someone responds under stress to give you an insight into what their personality will be like. 
Yeah. So we look, we look at those sort of things. Uh, that's the early stages. Then we need to look at level of training. Now, we could spend three hours talking about... You're journeying into some dangerous ground here, Joe. <laughs> and, and look, longer training isn't necessarily the answer. Yep. Uh, it's more about what we're, what they're actually learning in that training and yep. how that training's being delivered. Uh, and I think there's probably... Um, well, I know for a fact uh, the researcher has, has shown that refresher training and ongoing training is the answer. It's not just give them... Yeah, three days of defensive tactics training, send them out into the workforce, and ten years from now, when they're in their first incident, they'll remember it. That's yep. it's just not like it's just not going to happen. Yep. Uh, but also, what we found is that generally in the security industry, the training is focused on basic restraints, um, you know, come along holds, uh, and if the training is done well, it will focus on conflict minimization as well. Mm-hmm. But it's very much a paint by numbers approach. It's 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 canned phrases it's uh it, it's how do i how do i talk someone into leaving this place or how do, how do i cut someone to calm down using a little bit of verbal judo and uh and unfortunately in a limited time frame it's it, it can be difficult for students to a remember any of that information especially when their heartbeats hitting 180 beats per minute and they've got you know, someone who's very angry in front of them um and, and secondly the, the information just isn't always that good so what we need to focus on is teaching them how they can develop rapport, how they can how they can express empathy for the person in front of them and not get combative themselves. Yep. And speaking from experience, as someone who entered the security industry as an 18-year-old, who, um, yeah, I'm a, I was six foot three, 120 kilograms in Australian judo national rep at that time. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, ha- I had physical solutions to problems. Um, but what I learned very quickly was that you needed to develop non-physical solutions. And even better, if you could be likable so no one wanted to punch you in the first place. <laughs> so yep. so what, what we sort of came out with is that the verbal strategies that people need are preventative in nature. Not necessarily de-escalation, but rather avoiding the escalation in the first place. So how do they, how do they show empathy? How do they seek the root cause of the problem? Does this person need to, be, uh, need to have a problem solved for them? Are they, are they upset because there's a problem you can solve or do they just need to be heard and validated in their emotion? Yep. And if that's the case, if the, if the person who's receiving that aggression can then um, facilitate that, then you, you avoid having the issue. You do, but it so, doesn't always work that way in a perfect not. world. There no. are more than enough times that I can remember where you turn up and the time for talking is over and one person is now riding the other like a stolen mule around the yep. top floor of the nightclub and... Uh, <laughs> It, it, time for speaking is over. Yep. In those sorts of situations mm-hmm. where it has gotten physical, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I guess my question for you is how much impact does role play scenario training and all those sorts of things have in inoculating people against the emotional and psychological scars of violence? That's an excellent question, uh, and it's something that's often missed. Uh, the ability to role play effectively. It's something that has to be trained. Um, you, can, you can do a role play in a class, but if no one's really into it, it doesn't really have any extra benefit. It just becomes a really uncomfortable training experience. Uh, but if you can find a way to get people inoculated to the actual stress of being involved in a real situation, that makes a world of difference. Um, the, the hardest thing when it's real is the unpredictable and the, the unknown, which is, am I going to get hurt? How many people are involved? 
is this person actually trying to hurt me or are they just trying to get to the other guy and I'm just trying to separate them? At what point does that change? Because sometimes you'll be breaking up a fight between two people and all of a sudden they yep. both decide you're the enemy. Um, you might have other people that are involved that uh, you're unaware of. You may not know the capability of your team if you're working as a team. Uh, so what we look at in, in terms of how we manage those kind of situations, I'll come back to your question about stress yep. inoculation. No, no. But one of the things that uh, we, we look at in those sort of situations is really treating it as a, as a risk-based problem, not a technique-based problem. Yep. So, for example, uh, I, I hate to, hate to uh, share a war story. But, That's all right. Um, but uh, one we'll, place we'll I, like war stories. <laughs> good. One place I was working at uh, in in the north of Brisbane, we had um, a bikey gang that had uh, had an altercation the week before with uh, a group of Tongan lads, and uh, the following week, uh, half of Polynesia showed up, and so did uh, a bunch of uh, a bunch of these lads uh, in their leathers. Yep, and uh, we knew a fight was coming. Did we, you sell tickets? This sounds like it would have been interesting. Uh, <laughs> we, we were more just uh, updating our wills. Uh, yep. we, we had a team of four, uh, yep. and uh, we were numbered close to 10 to 1 if we added up all the combatants. Yep. We knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to kick off at some point. Um, we didn't know when. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, didn't have, we didn't even really have the ability to refuse them entry because they would have forced their way in. Yep. Uh, and they came in staggered in different orders and so on, so it, was, uh, yeah, it wasn't like they were arriving in one group. Yep. And uh, so we notified the local police of what was happening and what was going to happen and asked them to have, you know, uh, have crews available and, and close by uh, yep. and ideally come now, but yep. they wouldn't do that. And um, then basically when it did kick off, our risk analysis of the situation was there is nothing we can do as four people to be able to stop this fight. Yep. So all we did was we, we managed the risk by pulling everyone who wasn't involved away from the dance floor and just let them have the space. And just wait for the police to arrive and start capsicum spraying everybody. And I'm guessing it wasn't a dance fight like West Side Story. No, no. You it was said a, they were all on the dance floor. But they were is, on the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was. Uh, it was. Yeah, it was, yep. wasn't quite. It wasn't very poetic. Right. But, uh, okay. No, it's. Um, but I mean, the the risk approach to that was we can't do anything here. Yep. Uh, and if we had, we would have just got stomped. Yep. So it was about pulling other people off, and that's why that's why I say we we need to look at occupational violence as a risk based problem, not a a fight. Yeah, yeah. we got to manage the risk. Yep. Um, but coming back to your question about stress inoculation, that is one of the challenges with the security industry because the people that we're recruiting into the industry have a variety of different levels of exposure. They might be uni students who have never been in a fight in their lives. They've never seen aggression. They've come from good homes, good families. They haven't grown up with it. Um, yeah, I was in the first fight of my life when I was on my first shift. Mm. <laughs> I signed on at 7pm I was in a fight at 5 past um, that was the first time I'd been involved in a fight yep. uh, and uh, I didn't know what to do with myself uh, thankfully I had good mentors within the industry to help me and that's probably part of the solution uh, in that regard and then other people that we recruit into the industry do come from different backgrounds that they, they are comfortable with yeah, uh, conflict and aggression and, and so on they've, they've experienced it yep. um, so they're going to they're gonna take to a little bit sometimes too easily <laughs> Yeah, and it might, it, they might just uh, you know, tick over into you know, business as usual. Because there is a difference between a fight and a fight. You know, mm-hmm. people think, "Oh, I've been in fights before," which is, you know, your friends hold you back, his friends hold him back. You both stand there screaming mm-hmm. filthy names at each other, and then go home for the next six months talking about how great you were during the fight. Mm-hmm. And then there's a social violence where someone in a venue is seriously trying to squash you like a bug. Yep. 
one does not prepare you for the other. No, and and realistically, any sort of um, social violence where it's a, it's an escalation of communication into a into a fight, yep. whether it's you know, someone doesn't like the way you're looking at them, doesn't like the way you spoke to them, ninety percent of that is avoidable. Yep, uh, that that usually comes down to a battle of egos. Yep, and the the less ego you have uh, about whether you are right or wrong, or you have authority, you don't have authority, or whatever. The less ego you have about that, the less likely you're going to be involved in those sort of situations. Because one thing I learned is that you you can be right or you can be safe. Yeah. And and sometimes it's better. I've had people that are half my size and they say, "Look, man, I don't want to fight you. You're going to hurt me. I can tell. Mm. I can tell. Look, you're 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 a mean guy. Like yep. I, I don't want to fight you. I just want you to leave so I can go home safe." And they boost his ego up. Yeah. He feels like he had a win and he still leaves. Yeah. Right? And it because I can sort of swallow my pride and go, yeah, "Well, you know what." It doesn't really matter what he thinks or what anyone else thinks. Um, those situations are, uh, are usually avoidable. The asocial, where someone has come in with the intent to cause violence and to cause harm, they're looking for a fight and they're going to they're gonna find one no matter what, they're a little bit harder to deal with. Uh, and that comes back to our preventative measures in terms of um, who, if we're talking about a nightclub situation, for example, who we're letting in the door, mm. how, how we're assessing those, how well-trained are our door staff to be identify these behaviours early. Uh, how are we profiling these people in terms of most people that are looking for a fight? They they either look they're coming with a group that looks like they're they're itching for a fight, or they come in on their own. Yeah. Right? So why why is he rocking up on his own? Yeah, it's, yep. it's worth having a conversation about. If we're taking it to the to the broader security industry, where let's say you're working at, uh, and I'm just talking about guarding for the for the, mm-hmm. the moment, but let's say we've got someone who's uh, yeah doing a, a loss prevention role, and you've got someone in there who is intent on uh, stealing or causing causing vandalism, and if violence becomes part of that, then they're totally okay with that. Then it, it, again, it comes down to a risk based decision. What's what's worth getting involved in here? Well, yeah, and I mean there are there are some retailers and employers who will say, under no circumstances do we want this to become physical. If mm-hmm. they, if you've seen selection and placement, and you've got someone walking out of the store with an item, and it looks like it's going to get physical, just let them go. Yep. But in your report, you refer to the the Work Health and Safety Act of 2011 as citing an employer's duty of care is explicit, that is, to provide a a place of work and system of work that is free from risk to health and safety for all employees and other relevant stakeholders. But again, we use the analogy, or you used the analogy earlier, that just because firefighters are around smoke and fire doesn't mean we can't make it safer. Yes. Doesn't this process begin, and see... Let me preface this by saying if this was a YouTube video, this is the point at which you want to turn the comments off because <laughs> people are going to start saying bad things here. Doesn't this begin with the RTOs? Because if someone is coming through and doing a, a, a security training course and we are putting them through role play and we can see that they are incredibly ill-suited for whatever the reason may be. Um, psychologically, they don't have the disposition. Physically, they don't have the disposition. There are plenty of people out there that would argue with me and say neither of those things should be relevant. But the fact of the matter is, they are. If someone is psychologically unsuited to working in a confrontational role, then why are we giving them licenses and putting them in the industry? Is this something that the RTOs need to take a more active role in, or is it something that people need to be governing themselves on? I think there's two sides to that coin. Having worked in the RTO sector as well, Yep. And having delivered those trainings and and uh, been responsible for guards entering the workforce, mm-hmm. my um, 
my goal was always when I was teaching uh, a Cert 2 or Cert 3 course that I want to get this person to a standard where I'd be happy to employ them. Yep. Not everyone can get to that standard. Um, that's just the reality of the of the pool that we had coming through. Uh, now, I do think that there are roles within the industry where people that I wouldn't want to have on the front door of a nightclub can still function quite well. Yep. Okay, so if, I, if I've got, for example, I've got a... Uh, yeah, uh, a 52-year-old female who is changing careers. Uh, she's been out of the workforce. She's coming back into the workforce. All she wants to do is be a screener at the airport. Okay. That's a great point. Yeah, that's fine. If she wants to work in a control room, that's fine. That doesn't make me as a, as a trainer and assessor at an RTO responsible if a crowd control company decides to hire her and put her on the front door of a nightclub. Yep. I think there are, there are a lot of roles within the industry where people that are maybe not suited for direct conflict, certainly physical conflict, can still function and thrive and do quite well. Um, so I, I think on one hand, it's probably the responsibility of the RTO to get to offer guidance to the student as to what where their skills are and what sort of jobs they should be looking at if they don't already know. Yep. Uh, certainly if that lady had expressed to me that she really wants to yeah go into large event crowd control... Um, I would probably counsel her that that may not be the best position for her unless she wants to do comms and wants to do yeah, uh, some sort of behind-the-scenes role. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can certainly counsel, but I do think the the burden, the majority of the burden needs to lie on the employer and how they're assessing the people they're employing and what role they're putting them in. Oh, see, now we're getting into the weeds here because <laughs> is it fair to infer from what you're saying that it might be reasonable to suggest further down the track if we're looking at managing occupational violence and aggression in the industry that we have restrictions and classes within security licenses so we can say and i'm putting these words in your mouth for everyone listening to this podcast joe's not (laughs) saying this i am so we can say this person is approved for working in uh, a security role such as control rooms and airport screening and all the rest of it but not crowd control in a venue or not close personal protection. I mean, I know that's a different class of license before everyone screams at me and says, you're an idiot, that's a different license. But, you know, would it be fair to say we have different restrictions on licenses so that some people can do certain roles but not others? I think that's probably one of the many licensing reforms that need to happen. Uh, I think there's a. I think that's a big. That's a big topic. There's a lot that should be done from a security licensing point of view uh, that, again, could be a whole other show. But it's certainly something we can look at for sure. I, I think the the classes of licenses probably need to be reevaluated in terms of training requirements and uh, and uh, yeah, different metrics. Because you you make a valid point. There's just because someone's not suited to working in perhaps you know a, a local bar frequented by Hell's Angels doesn't mean they wouldn't make a good screener at an airport. Mm-hmm. But there is no distinction on licenses right now. So you know to use your example the you know, the 50-something-year-old grandmother who's just gotten her security licence and has been employed by a company who's perhaps not the sharpest operator mm-hmm. might send her out to a role for which she is completely unsuited just because she has a security licence, whereas if she had restrictions on her licence, they can't necessarily put her in that role. Yeah, I also think that um, it, it comes back to the ability of the organisation to plead ignorance. Uh, that you can't plead ignorance if you know you're putting someone in an unsafe role. Mm. Just because they've got a license doesn't mean they're safe to work in that pla- in that position, and you should know that. Yeah. Uh, having having worked in a manpower role where we had a national sorry manpower uh, coordination operations centre role where we had a national loss prevention contract, uh, loss prevention can be the easiest job in the world, 
or it, it can be quite wild depending on where you're working. Uh, and this was a chemist chain, so often the uh, often the <laughs> the the attempted th- uh, thefts from chemists can be you know, quite aggressive. And uh, we had certain stores where we would put larger or more physically capable uh, personnel, and some stores where we put others that were yeah you know, uh, less of a less of a deterrent, but you know, suitable operators regardless. So so again, it comes down to a little bit of. Um, uh, responsibility of the employer to know who they've got and where they're going to place them and, and, and mitigate those risks, not just for the client, but also for their staff. But this all comes back to what you were talking about before with, you know, people being sensible about the role as opposed to, you know, doing dumb things. If you walk up to someone and say, as part of your training, hey, is there something I can help you with? Because you've noticed them just putting something in their handbag or their back pocket or their man bag or whatever it may be, that immediately alerts the person to the fact that, oh crap, I've been seen. Mm-hmm. The confrontation doesn't necessarily need to go physical. That's right. That's right. So let's talk about some of the key findings from the report here. And the first one is that occupational violence and aggression is a larger area of risk than many organisations acknowledge. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, what we found is that most organisations uh, did not even have occupational violence on their risk register, uh, and that's a concern because right. when we when we surveyed their staff, uh, the staff were saying, yes, we've been exposed to occupational violence and aggression. And it doesn't mean they've been punched in the face. It could mean they've been threatened, they've been abused, um, they've been uh, verbally intimidated, they've had harassment thrown at them, um, racial, sexual, whatever. Uh, and it's certainly something that is... Uh, that is actually impacting their staff, and yet it's not recorded on the risk register. So that alone means that it's a bigger issue than than most companies are actually acknowledging. Yeah, and that's an important point because we've been talking here about physical violence, mm-hmm. but there are other forms of violence oh, from sexual harassment to bullying and all the rest of it. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most crowd controllers will have experienced sexual harassment at some point in time throughout their career, Absolutely. if not frequently. Mm. Like every, every time a hen's night comes in. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> or vice versa. If vice it's versa. female absolutely. crowd controllers 100%. working in male environments, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and yeah, there's 100%. Uh, I, would, I would say anyone who's worked in the industry longer than three months has for sure experienced that. Uh, but I think that, that is really important is that oftentimes we look at occupational violence and aggression, OVA, and we get fixated on the word violence. And we think, oh, well, no one's been assaulted, therefore violence hasn't happened. Yep. Well, No. Uh, and one of the other key findings that came out, I'm sure you'll get to, was that the the emotional and psychological impact was far more significant than the physical impact. So it was the impact that these events were ha- were taking on uh, on the uh, the victims' psyche, their ability to come to work, their happiness at work, and also their family life when they when they returned home, that was significant. Uh, and those aren't always recorded. Uh, you can you can have a lost time injury because someone got stitches, or you can have a lost time incident because someone. Yeah, broke their hand or, or something uh, dur- during a physical altercation. But you're not able to necessarily quantify how much your productivity or your quality of service has deteriorated because someone has mentally checked out. Yep. But as an employer, how... Uh, I mean, I don't know if the report's gone this deep into the weeds, but how do you determine if someone is experiencing psychological and emotional scarring as a result of their role? And then what do you do about it? It's a, it's a really good question. Uh, the answer is you need to actually have a relationship with your staff. 
you need to be able to have at least a surface level debrief. You need to at least talk to them about the incident and then have continual debrief after that. Uh, Every organisation should have some sort of employee assistance program that allows the staff member to talk uh, to a qualified counsellor at any time doesn't have to be immediately after the incident. Sometimes these emotional impacts they they don't they don't appear immediately. It might be three months down the track they start having symptoms of of you know, post traumatic stress or or, uh, or or other psychological uh, issues as a result of that incident that were not immediately apparent. So you might have someone who is yeah, a trusted war horse who's been through the mill and it's it's just business as usual and everyone assumes he's fine and he might tell you he's fine for the, yeah, months and he might be fine and then one day he wakes up and he can't go back to sleep. Or you suddenly start noticing that he disappears to the toilet every time there's a violent, yeah. potentially violent incident. Or, or he's finding he's more aggressive about things that he wouldn't need uh, be, be aggressive about before. Yep. Or he might be overreacting. Or he might have a relationship breakdown. Uh, yep. There's all these sorts of things. And one thing that's it's very apparent to us as a result of the, the study is that home life doesn't stop when you sign on. Yep. So if work is causing issues at home, home will cause issues at work. Yep. Uh, another linkage that, that was apparent in the study was the, the uh, and topical at the moment, unfortunately, is the uh, domestic violence link, um, domestic violence following people to work. Yep. Whether it be that someone is being abused and mm-hmm. the abuser is following them to work or harassing them at work or trying to cause problems for them at work, or whether it be that someone has been involved in an altercation at home and then come to work already emotionally charged and uh, is possibly not going to be performing their duties very well once they get to work. But I imagine that's a two-way street. I mean, if someone works in a in a let's say a physical role in the security industry where you know they pride themselves on being well-to-do and easy to you know can, can handle themselves or whatever it may be, and they've copped a bit of a a, a touch-up here and there, and perhaps their pride is a little bit injured or they're feeling emotionally hurt and all the rest of it, would they not take that home with them? Absolutely, it's it's very possible, uh, and I think it's. It's hard to say everybody would. Yep. Uh, and, and certainly it may be that you, know, you, you could do this job for 10 years and never have an issue and then one incident pushes yep. you over the edge and all of a sudden it's changing who you are as a person. Yep. Uh, one thing I used to counsel young guards about when I was training them was, uh, especially because most most mm. of us at that time were casual employees with you know, no holiday pay, etc. I said, always keep enough money in the bank to take two weeks off. Yep. Because you don't know when you're going to need to decompress. Yep. And uh, and that was for me. I found that after a year of five nights a week in clubs, mm. that um, I was becoming more aggressive because all all I was dealing with was like I, mean, I was working in pretty much the worst clubs that we had uh, in terms of violence, and all I was dealing with was violence and aggression every single night. And I wasn't seeing the good in humanity anymore. And it would t- take me a couple of weeks to sort of decompress, go see friends that were outside of that world, and then I'd come back and I'd be a little bit more myself again. Uh, but I think that um, it, there's something to be said for that prolonged exposure to low-level aggression, uh, not just this big significant incidents. Absolutely. I mean, I haven't probably worked in a club for over 20 years now, but I still can't go into nightclubs without immediately switching into work mode and yep. not enjoying it, just sitting there watching for trouble the yep. whole time. Abs- absolutely. It's yep. uh yeah, and, and now as I, as I get older and I, and I realise that, I, that uh, the people inside the nightclub are actually closer to my kids' age than my age, it's actually worse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now you just feel like the creepy old weird guy that hangs out in the club. Um, now, one of the things that you highlighted in the report was that post-incident procedures, 
are often lacking in many workplaces. And this comes back to, I guess, what you were discussing before with the debrief and being able to talk people through and determine whether or not there is any long-term ongoing damage. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of different parts of that. Uh, and really coming back to the, the whole theme of our findings, there has to be integrated solutions and shared responsibility here. Oftentimes, uh, many workplaces, and if we step outside the security industry for a second, but many workplaces treat the post-incident phase as being the responsibility of the police. Yeah. Yeah. We hand it over to police, there was an assault or there was an abuse or there was, a, there was a threat made, the police will deal with it, our responsibility is done. And that's 100% not the case. The police will do not have the resources to check on the mental welfare of your employee. And in some cases, it may not even be an investigative priority, especially if it was just a threat for example. Um, So larger organisations especially need to have some ability to conduct an investigation into what happened, at least from a workplace health and safety point of view. I'm not talking about prosecuting perpetrators or banning people from stores or anything like that necessarily, but at least to investigate the cause of what happened. So it might just be the, the workplace health and safety reps get a little bit of training in OVA and they can then go out, have a look at the incident. How did this take place? What was said? what was done, let's have a look at the CCTV, let's see where it, where it began and see if we can find any lessons that we can learn from this to prevent it from happening in the first place. So that's the, that's the investigative um, uh, side of it. And then there's also the emotional and psychological recovery of the employee, making sure that they return to work in as close to a manner as possible to what they started off as. And that but, might be, sorry, just to... Just yeah, to go on. Um, with the security industry, that might be we're going to put them in a different place. We're going to put them in a different role. We're going to ease them back into work where they're not going to be re-triggered by a certain event, uh, if at all possible. Um, so it depends on what you have available to you as an employer. I was going to say, this is where it becomes a catch-22, though, because there's two elements at play here. First of all, people who work traditionally, especially in the crowd control side of things, but also security, generally tend to have a more... Um, alpha type personality where they're not going to put their hand up and say I'm hurting I'm Mm -hmm. not emotionally okay I need help with this Mm -hmm. so I imagine there's an element where it's incumbent upon companies to encourage people to do so but then the second part of that and this show proves out time and time again in post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers there's a fear there's an underlying fear that if I put my hand up and say I'm not okay I'm going to be taken out of my job and perhaps financially or um, career-wise penalised for not being okay. How do we address that? I think it's a, it's a matter of communicating up front of what the procedure is if someone is involved in an incident that has affected them and reassure them that, no, you're not going to be penalised for it. But as a, as a caring measure, we're going to rotate you through another role potentially. Yeah, mm-hmm. And that will be, at the, yeah, it'll be a mutual consultation between us and the employee and whoever, uh, to be able to establish what is the appropriate course of action. But you, you will get back to where you were. We just want to make sure you look, you're okay when you get there. Yep. Uh, and it's just a matter of making sure those expectations are set because, as you know, in this industry, uh, people are, are concerned for their jobs and they're, con- they're, they're aware that, uh, that they can be treated as replaceable quite easily. And if they become a burden, then they might be without a job. Uh, and I think it's important for, for the uh, employers to have a policy that says that will not happen. We will not allow that to happen to uh, a good guard. And this is what we're going to do about it. And we're going to communicate that to the guard ahead of time, not just after the incident when he thinks it's, you know, they're just trying to shuffle him out the door. Yep. One of the things that you looked at as part of this report was the impact of technology on occupational violence and aggression. 
What about body-worn cameras? Did that come into it at all as far as minimising occupational violence and aggression? Because if people know that they're on camera, if they know that they're being filmed, they may be less likely to act in a violent or aggressive manner? It's not something that we went deep into. Uh, certainly, any level of deterrent and, and body-worn cameras are a deterrent, um, same as CCTV or you know, duress buttons or, or whatever, or um, yeah, any other kind of monitoring software or, or technological solution. It's certainly a deterrent, and any deterrent is a positive. In terms of the actual return on the investment, hard to say. Yep. It's, I th- look, I think in a perfect world, yes, all our, all our personnel should have body-worn cameras because it's still an extra deterrent. Whether that is financially feasible... Uh, yep. would really come down to a risk-based decision for the employer at this point. Yeah, okay. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in the in the actual research findings. If people want to find out more about the study, where do they go? So we are keying up for a public launch uh, later this week, I believe. Uh, but in the meantime, if they want to see the preliminary launch, they can uh, email me at uh, joe.s at risk2solution.com. Fantastic. And Joe, I have one final question for you in parting here. And, you know, this could probably be a podcast all on its own. From the research and based on what you were seeing during the research, are we becoming a more aggressive society? I think we're becoming a more antisocial society. Uh, And I think that has manifested itself in more aggression. I think, generally speaking, people have less social skills. They have less empathy for each other. And because of that, I mean, we're seeing people fighting over toilet paper at the moment. Right? Yep. So uh, I think because of that, we're becoming much more self-centered. And I think that's why an emphasis on good communication skills and empathy is the, is the starting point for being able to manage aggression in society. Uh, and that will, be, that will filter through to our workplace. But what we really hope to accomplish uh, with this research report is that the people within organizations, whether they be security or otherwise, that know they can do more to keep their staff safe from occupational violence and aggression, now have something they can look at and go, this is academically verifiable, this is best practice, this is what good looks like. And they now have something to reference. Uh, those that don't know what they want to, they, they don't know uh, what to do, they now have a document that they can look at as well. Uh, and that's really what we've been trying to achieve, is something that everyone can look at and go, this is what good looks like, this is how we build a plan, this is how we make a difference. Yep. And just out of interest, one last question. I said that before, but, you know, it's just what I do. Um, why do you feel we're becoming more antisocial? I think there's, uh, there's less need in society for us to interact with human beings now. Uh, and there's less consequence for poor interaction with human beings now. I mean, now if you, if you were... Um, so and this, this is not born from the research. This is my mm. personal opinion. Uh, but, but now if you were um, so inclined, you could literally live in your house and have all your groceries delivered to you you could have your entertainment delivered to you you could you, you wouldn't actually have to interact with another human being if you didn't want to this sounds like heaven <laughs> you had me at you'd never have no i'm kidding yes, but but i mean that's real that's reality now we don't have yeah. to interact with human beings and therefore the interactions we do have are by choice and uh and any interaction that's forced upon us such as having to ask a, you know, a waiter where my coffee is because i ordered it 20 minutes ago Mm. Uh, we're not as well practiced at being empathetic towards each other and to actually developing relationship. Uh, and I think that is manifesting itself in yeah, uh, more self-serving behaviors. 
Uh, and I, I think that's I think that's one piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of it. There's there's arguments of I just got done interviewing uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman about uh, about his his view on that, and uh, he has a a very strong view on the influence of media and uh, and so on in our uh, fetishization of violence. Yeah, which uh, is a topic for another day. But there, there's a lot of pieces, but I do think a large part large part of it is we're just not socially interacting with each other face to face as much anymore, and we're lacking those social skills. Yeah. And so, who else do we have to thank for this report? So, uh, again, big big thanks to ASIL. ASIL have been the, the primary contributor to, to the research, so we need to thank them. Uh, also, the ISRM, uh, which um, yeah, we just launched the Australian chapter of the Institute of Strategic Risk Management, Risk to Solution, for providing the majority of the manpower uh, when it came to the actual, the actual data. Uh, also, Kath Brinkley from the Australian Security Research Centre, uh, Nicole Sofianos, and uh, Col- uh, sorry, Kurt Short-Stripping uh, from Big Dog Security in Toowoomba, who assisted with the literature review. Uh, and also, of course, my co-authors, which was Dr. Paul Johnston and uh, Dr. Gav Schneider. Fantastic. And when it's publicly launched, if people want to get hold of a copy of the report, where do they go? You go to the Australian Security Research Centre website, which is www.asrc.com.au. And that comes out later this week? Later this, this week, yes. This week being the uh, the week of the, the 10th of... Uh, is it the 10th? Yeah, the 10th of March. Yeah, so, so yep. pro- chances are by the time you hear this podcast, it's already up there. Yep, Fantastic. Joe, thank you very much for your time. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like more podcasts like this one, there are plenty of them in the ASIAL Insider series. Just go to Google Play, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, all the great places that you find podcasts. And we look forward to talking to you again next time.